Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, hope you're all well. Well, here you go, 150 episodes. Well, that's 150 cases. We do have a few other special editions thrown in there. But what a milestone. And I must thank all the listeners, especially the Patreon and PayPal supporters that have kept the island's lights on into our fifth year. So, this week we have a case from way back in 1942 in Melbourne where three women would lose their lives to a baby-faced, gentle and soft-natured soldier from the U.S. of A. Now, references tonight are from The Age, the National Archives of Australia, the Australian Dictionary of Biography and Court Records. So, it's 1942, Melbourne, Australia, and as you know, World War II is well underway with the United States Armed Forces being officially involved since the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Around 1 million US troops would pass through Australia between 1941 and 1945. Now, they were largely concentrated near Brisbane, Rockhampton and Townsville. However, General Douglas MacArthur, who became the Supreme Commander of the Southwest Pacific Area on April 18, 1942, initially established his headquarters in Melbourne. Now, all wasn't rosy between the Australian troops and the US troops. The lower ranks, the US troops were paid twice as much as the equivalent Aussie diggers, and as you went up the ranks, the pay gap was even more pronounced. Not only did the pay gap cause issues, but many a fight broke out over women with the extra money going to lure the girls with nylon stockings, chocolates and, of course, American cigarettes. Now, these tensions did boil over in what would be called the Battle of Brisbane, a two-day fight in November of 1942 between the Aussies and the Americans that left one Aussie dead and hundreds injured on both sides. Now, some of the tensions, though, came from a series of murders by a US serviceman, Eddie Leonsky, down in Melbourne during May of 1942. Born Edward Joseph Leonsky on December 12, 1917 at Kenville, Morris County, New Jersey, Eddie's father, John Leonsky, was a labourer. He was born in Russia and was a chronic alcoholic that was very cruel to his family. His mother, Amelia Harkovitz, was born in Poland and was very unhappy in the marriage. Leonsky's father left when he was six years old and although he had very little memory of him, he disliked and resented him very much. His mother would marry again to another worthless bum. Leonsky would have two older brothers and a younger sister and brother. The home never had a steady flow of income, but when Leonsky started working, he gave most of his money to support the family. Although as a kid he was quite athletic and mixed well with the other kids, he wasn't into team games such as baseball or football, rather he enjoyed playing handball against a wall by himself. 
He would lift weights to build his body up and became extremely strong. And as he got older, he became interested in boxing and wrestling, developing a high degree of skill in most, so much that he found it hard to get opponents to fight when he joined the army, as they feared him. He liked the sense of fear he induced in others, although he was never a bully or would never start a fight deliberately. As was usual back in the day, most of Leonsky's knowledge about sex came from the boys on the street. He started to spank the monkey at around 16 years of age and was worried that it might harm his physical development. (laughs) He might get one arm just a little bit stronger than the other. Who knows? He rarely dated girls. He never had a steady girlfriend and only occasionally had sex. He was good at school, causing no trouble to the teachers and in 1936 graduated in High School of Commerce, New York with an average of 82.17 and made the honour roll. He was just 18 years of age. After school, he got an office job that he hated because of the lack of physical activity associated with sitting in an office all day. He ended up in several grocery stores, though, where he would impress staff and customers by holding a 100-pound sack of sugar above his head with just one hand. Now, it's here that he learned how to shortchange customers, a skill he found satisfaction in because it gave him a sense of superiority over his victims. He even told his boss he did it. Now, when he was called up to the army in February 1941, he really just didn't settle in. He was often AWOL, but seemed to get away with it. And it's at this time that his drinking, which was reasonably heavy already, started to get out of hand. He really resented being away from his mother. He was sent to Melbourne a year later, landing in February of 1942, staying at a temporary base called Camp Pell in Albert Park. He was assigned to the 52nd Signal Battalion, ranked as a private. Now he went AWOL for several days and on his return to camp he was thrown in the stockade for 40 days. He managed to get boozed though, get drunk and then he walked out. He just started to walk away. Now the guard on duty was screaming for him to halt. Halt! But Leonsky just kept walking. He didn't even turn behind him at all. The guard fired a shot into the end. The guard fired a shot into the air, not into his end. But Leonsky didn't flinch. He just kept walking. Now, on his return, the guard actually apologised to him and all was good. Now, Leonsky would smoke a pack a day and he wouldn't stop drinking until his money ran out or someone else's money ran out that was with him. Now, once drunk, he would show off by walking on his hands, challenging others to arm wrestles and anything else to boost his ego. He would rarely remember the night before, though. His drinking and smoking wasn't the only thing he did to excess. Like, he would eat a whole tub of ice cream rather than a bowl, or a whole pound of candy, or lollies we call them in Australia, rather than just a few. Now, Leonsky had one friend in the army and he protected him from harm. And although he was generally cheerful, he wouldn't become sociable until he had those few drinks under his belt. Okay, so now we come to the night of May the 2nd, 1942. 
Leonsky's just recently finished his 40-day stay in the stockade for going AWOL and is out drinking. Now, just to set the scene, Melbourne at the time was in a brownout state. That is not a total blackout that you might have got in England or Europe, but streetlights would have been switched off and generally it was pretty dark at night if you were walking around. Now, while I was doing research for this, there was so much controversy on this brownout because there was cars crashing into each other. The trams were all had their lights off. And it was just not deemed to be that safe a place. Now, Melbourne, as you know where it is, is a long way away from almost any harm or from the Japanese or who was ever going to get us. Anyway, at around 7am the next morning, that's the morning of the 3rd of May, the body of a woman is found by Harold Gibson, an employee of the Bleak House Hotel, which is on the corner of Victoria Avenue and Beaconsfield Parade. It's still there. She was found in the entry to a shop which is part of the hotel building. At first he thought she was asleep, but when shaken, there was no response. Her clothing seemed to be torn from her and she was partially nude. Now Harold called the cops and a doctor on the scene thought she'd been dead for around three or four hours. A post-mortem examination revealed she died from a fractured skull and she had marks around her neck as if she'd been strangled. Later in the day, the woman was identified as 40-year-old Ivy Violet McLeod of Victoria Parade East Melbourne, a hostess at a city cafe. Her handbag containing money was found near her body, ruling out robbery as a motive for the attack. But with the state of her clothing, there was no doubt that the attack was violent. However, it did seem that the attack was swift as no cries for help were heard by anyone at the hotel or by anyone living nearby. Then just six days later on Saturday the 9th of May, the body of 32-year-old Pauline Thompson, wife of a cop from Bendigo, was found lying on the steps leading to an apartment house in Spring Street in the city where she lived in the city of Melbourne. She was discovered at 5am by Henry McGowan, a night watchman who'd previously found a woman's handbag in Malthouse Lane and that's just around the corner. Now this bag belonged to Pauline and it aided in her identification. Now she'd met with her husband who'd come down from Bendigo on the Friday with their adopted son, seven-year-old Bruce. Now, Pauline saw her husband off when he caught the train back to Bendigo at 5.40pm. Pauline had come to live in Melbourne to work at International Harvester after working as a radio announcer at 3CV Radio in Bendigo. Now, she was musically gifted and performed as a musician and an entertainer. Now, later she did get a job at 3AW Radio Station and she originally lived in a room at Bridport Street in Albert Park or near Albert Park but had just moved into a fourth floor room at Spring Street under the name of Miss O'Brien. Again, no one heard any screams or struggle during the night even though the owners of the building were sleeping just metres away in a basement unit. Now, beads from a broken necklace were found near the body, as well as one of her shoes. The clothes showed signs of a struggle as she apparently tried to defend herself. Police at the time believed the murders of Ivy and Pauline were perpetrated by the same villain, but they had no leads to who it may be. 
Then on Tuesday the 19th of May, a woman's body was found just inside the railings of Royal Park on Gatehouse Street. An American soldier had discovered the body in the early morning and notified police. Now she was lying face down, clothing torn in the mud. An open umbrella and a hat were found nearby, as well as her handbag, which contained a sum of around four pounds, and it had her identity documents as well. It was 40-year-old Gladys Hosking, an assistant and secretary to a science master at the Melbourne University School of Chemistry. She was also an amateur theatrical. Now, police were sure this was the third victim in a series of murders of women over the past two weeks. They got a break in the case when an Australian soldier told police he saw a mud-splattered American soldier stagger past him the night before going back to the camp. He would be identified as Eddie Leonsky. The Australian soldier wasn't the only one to alert police that day. His soldier mate, also contacted officers at the camp when he heard about a woman being found dead in the mud and Leonsky had come back from drinking the night before, sobbing and covered in mud as well. Now, Leonsky had tried to wash away the mud from his shoes and his clothes, but by the time police got to him, there was still mud all over his bunk, his tent, his clothes and his shoes. I guess being that paralytic drunk the night before, you just can't do it properly. He was taken into custody and was picked out of a lineup, but not by not only other women who had survived recent attacks, but others who'd seen him drunk, covered in mud on the way back to camp. Now, he would soon admit to not only the murder of Gladys, but also to the murder of Ivy and Pauline. When asked why, he just said he had no idea. He would go on to make three statements, though, in regards to the murders. So I'll read them out here. Now, this is in the case of Ivy Violet McLeod. And he said, On Saturday, May the 2nd, I was drinking in the bleak house with a number of soldiers. One of these soldiers was Mac Phillips from my outfit. I borrowed a shilling from him. We drank for quite a while. I don't know how many drinks we had. We were drinking beer and scotch. Mac left. I don't remember what time he left. I'd been drinking all day. I know I was high when I went to the hotel. I left with an American soldier and a girl. We walked across the street to the beach. There we sat against a wall on the beachfront and drank a bottle of beer. The other soldier got up and left. I don't know why he left. I was alone with the girl. We necked a bit. I did not have any intercourse with that girl. I think her name was Pat. We got up and walked back to the corner across the street. The other soldier was waiting there for us. The three of us stood around and talked while waiting for the tram. When the tram came, the soldier and the girl got on it and left. My tram seemed a long time in coming. I got to thinking about home and how lonely I was. Then I thought about six Australian civilians who jumped me one time and choked me until I was almost unconscious. I got tired of waiting and started to walk up Victoria Street. I saw a girl standing by a doorway. She smiled. I make some comment about her bag. I took it in my hands and then gave it back to her. The girl moved back into the recess 
and I must have followed her. I had my arms around her neck. I grabbed her by the neck, the left side. I changed the position of my hands and grabbed her at the front of her throat. I squeezed and she fell rapidly. Her head hit the ground while I still had my hands on her throat. I started to rip and tear her clothes until I came to her belt. I just couldn't rip that belt. I ripped her clothes below the belt and came back to it. The belt made me mad. While I was trying to rip her belt, I heard footsteps. I picked up my hat, which had fallen off, and put it on. I turned to my right and walked up Victoria Street. I didn't look back. I don't remember what time or how I got back to the camp. So that was Ivy's murder. Now, in the case of Pauline Thompson, he said, I remember now about the girl who was killed in Spring Street. I met her in a restaurant. She was waiting for an order. I asked her if I could sit with her. She smiled and said, All right. I told her I would rather have something stronger to drink. She told me she knew of a place. We walked around a bit, but it was raining and we stood indoors. We met a soldier who showed us a place to go and get a drink. We were sitting at a table drinking. I bought a few drinks. There was a girl sitting at a table in the corner looking at me. I was looking at her. Now my girl wanted to shout. I told her that when I went broke, I would let her shout. Now a shout in Australia is where you buy someone a beer. You buy a round of beers, goes to the next person. So she's not going to shout literally. Now she did shout. She was singing in my ear. She looked into my eyes and it sounded as though she was just singing for me. She was drinking gin squash. I tasted it, but it was too mild. She said she wasn't married. We were talking about life. We got along swell together. She asked me if I needed any money. I told her I didn't need any money. We sat around a while and drank. She told me she sang. After I was broke, she kept on buying all the drinks. When we left the hotel, she picked up her bag. She had a nice voice and she sang as we walked along. We turned a corner. There was nobody around. I didn't see anybody. I just heard her voice. Then we came to the stone steps. They were long steps. I grabbed her around the neck. She stopped singing. I said, keep singing, keep singing. She fell down. I got mad then and tore at her. I tore her apart. There was someone coming across the street. I hid behind a stone wall. I was terrified. My heart was pounding a mile a minute. I couldn't bear to look at her. I saw her purse. I knew I had to get back and I didn't have any money. I picked up her purse and put it beneath my coat. I knew I couldn't go far with such a big purse. I turned left and ran into an alley. I looked into her purse and there were a lot of things in it. I couldn't find the money at first. Everything I touched, I smudged. I didn't want to leave fingerprints. I finally found the money. There was a two and a half pounds. I dropped the purse. I saw the money under a light. I went to a corner and took a taxi back to the camp. I went to bed but I didn't sleep much. I woke up the next morning with a terrible headache. I looked for a drink straight away. I don't know where I found it. Probably one of the boys had a bottle. They usually do. She would not sing. How could she sing? Me choking her 
when I wanted her to sing. Now, that was uh, Pauline Thompson. So we get finally to the case of Gladys Hoskin. On Monday night, the 18th of May, 1942, I was drinking beer in the Parkville Hotel. When the pub closed, I went to the home of a friend with him and I lay on the bed for about 30 minutes. I then got up and I went out. I walked up the street. On the corner, I met a girl. It was a small girl. She had on a dark coat. She was carrying an umbrella. It was raining and I asked her to let me walk along with her. She said, all right. We walked along the street and we came to her house. I asked her to walk on with me and show me the way to the camp. She said, all right. We came along and soon came to a very dark part of the street. She stopped and said, there's the camp over there. She had a lovely voice. I wanted that voice. She was leaving to go to her house and I didn't want her to go. I grabbed her by the throat. I choked her. She didn't even make a sound. She was so soft. I thought, what have I done? I'll have to get her away from here. I then got her to a fence. I pushed her underneath. I got over and pulled her by the armpits underneath it. I carried her a short distance and fell into the mud. She made funny noises, a sort of gurgling sound. I thought I must stop that sound, so I tried to pull her dress over her face. I became frightened and started to run away. Then I met a soldier. He asked me where I was going. I told him, Royal Park. He said, where do you live? I said, Area 1, near the zoo. He said, go this way. I walked a long time and after a while I came to my latrine and walked in and some soldier asked me, where have you been? I told him I had a fall in the mud. I then went to my tent, I took my muddy clothes off and got into bed. The next morning I awoke and saw the muddy clothes. I thought to myself, my God, where have I been? What have I done? I then got up and washed the muddy clothes. Okay, so now that's how Gladys was murdered. Now, as I said before, these three women weren't the only ones to be attacked by Leonsky. There were quite a few that once they heard he was in custody, they went to police to pick him out of a lineup. Now, they may have gone to police before also and got contacted by police as they had reported the crime. Now, they were the lucky ones. Very lucky to get away with their lives. Okay, initially there would be a little issue on who's going to bring him to justice, the Victorian courts or via a court-martial by the US Army. In the end, his trial would be held under American military law, just using Australian facilities. Now, during the investigation, it would be found that after the second killing, Leonsky's soldier mate found him sobbing outside his tent. Now, he told him to snap out of it and come out with him for a drink. On the way, Leonsky talked incessantly about the murder of Pauline Thompson and insisted buying the newspaper to read all about it. Now, the next day, Leonsky popped into his mate's tent and said, Have you ever heard of a werewolf? Ever hear of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Well, I'm like him. Two personalities. Now, the next, day, the next day, his mate again saw him crying and Leonsky said to him, 
You wonder about these murders, but I know. I killed. I killed. Now, his mate thought about turning him into the police, but thought he was probably just delusional and let it ride. Now, Leonsky was found to be fit for trial. He had no history of mental illness. Now, after his court-martial, he would be found guilty and sentenced to hang until he was dead. And hang he did. Leonsky was hanged at Pentridge Prison on November the 9th, 1942. Now, on the way to the gallows, he was singing happily. It's a lovely day tomorrow, tomorrow's a lovely day. He would be buried in several locations in Australia until he finally found a resting place in Section 9, Row B, Site 8 at Schofield's Barracks Post Cemetery on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. So, why did Eddie Leonsky murder those three women? And as it would be found, he attacked several others. Other than being a dickhead, he did like his alcohol. He wasn't really sociable until he'd had a few drinks, but then he got into the zone where he was happy and would show off. Then at the end of the night, paralytic drunk, he would befriend and attack women, strangling three of them to death while violently ripping at their clothes. There was no signs that he had sex with any of the women either. He didn't try or he was either too drunk to get it up, I suppose. I guess you can call it instant asshole. Just add alcohol. Well, that's the end of this episode. That's number 150. There is the Missing in Michigan event coming up towards the end of May. I will be doing the video again for this year for them. I'll keep you up to date with that. My YouTube channel is just in a break at the moment while I reorganize a few things. So I'll let you know once season two is coming. So before I go, a big shout out to all my patrons. Thank you for the support that keeps the lights on as generally this is a commercial free podcast. And special thanks to my new patron, Blair Stackhouse, who actually not a new one, just upped the amount. Now, if you'd like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Or if you just want to buy me a beer, you can shout me out on paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Links to merch, social media, and my YouTube channels on my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can also contact me via email. So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Over under.